it's very important to be a Christian in this age because obviously or any age because otherwise you have no purpose in life you don't know why you're here and where you're going and in this age it's a time when the great tribulation is coming and we've got to have God's protection these years ahead and if we don't have it then we're going into the most horrible time in human history as Jesus said there's never been a time like it no nor ever shall be but the big picture is not just escaping the tribulation the big picture is fulfilling the purpose of human existence and that is that God is reproducing himself God made the animals that was very good God made the plants and each animal reproduced after his kind and then he goes right down the line and then God made man like him he didn't say after his kind but that's obviously what's implied God is making us after his kind we human beings are the only creatures that have understanding we have creative imagination to create things that no other creature does we put a man on the moon the chimpanzees or the other supposedly smart creatures they don't do anything remotely like that we have a God-like capacity and we're made in God's image and God is using us to grow to be like Christ and then to make us full sons of God to help rule the sun the moon the stars the entire cosmos out there which he intends to build later on as part of his kingdom tremendously exciting potential we have the ultimate human potential to become full sons of God in his kingdom and family forever there's nothing like that it's awesome warm festival greetings to all our brethren around the world We hope you are all having a wonderful feast wherever you are. As most of you know, Dr. Roderick C. Meredith died earlier this year. He suffered a stroke back in 2008, which left him partially disabled for the remainder of his life. But he fought on. He then was diagnosed with prostate cancer in early 2017. He went to sleep on May 18, 2017, and now awaits the resurrection. My life was directly affected by Dr. Meredith in powerful ways. He was my teacher, colleague, brother-in-law, and friend. In the earliest days of my conversion, his writings influenced my life. In 1959, I was teaching an 8th grade Sunday school class in Meriden, Connecticut. The material for the course was very weak, so I started using the Plain Truth magazine for course material, specifically Dr. Meredith's series on the Ten Commandments. As I taught that course, I began to understand God's truth in a whole new way, which led to my interest in attending Ambassador College in Pasadena. Dr. Meredith has touched the lives of all of us, either directly or indirectly. What some may not realize is that he served in the work of God for more than 64 years. That's even longer than Mr. Herbert Armstrong. Both of these men were giants in the Church of God. When we consider Dr. Mayer's contribution to the church, we find that there are many different parts to the picture. He was a strong voice for clean moral behavior among the students at the three Ambassador College campuses in which he served. He provided a comprehensive biblical education for us in his first year Bible class, which covered the four Gospels and the book of Acts. He also introduced and taught a class on the epistles of Paul, It's difficult to quantify the importance of his contribution toward an educated ministry, not only in the living Church of God, but among other Church of God groups. 
I think most of us realize that God used Mr. Herbert Armstrong in a very special way at the end of this age. But after his death, Satan tried to wipe the truth out of existence. It was then that Christ guided Dr. Meredith to fill the gap and revive the work that God used Mr. Armstrong to build. Dr. Meredith was not perfect. No man is. But he had a sincere heart. I can still remember from my days in Ambassador College that no one ever doubted that he believed what he preached and strove mightily to live the same. Even one who became a critic of the Churches of God wrote that he saw Dr. Meredith in a different light than all the others. As we remember Dr. Meredith, we were also here observing the Feast of Tabernacles, a festival he observed and taught about for decades. This festival symbolizes a time when the entire world will be learning God's way of life, every nation on earth. We are pioneers of that way. For we read of this soon coming time in Zechariah 14, verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Eternal of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Isaiah also prophesied, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Isaiah 2, verse 2. What a wonderful time that will be when these prophecies will be fulfilled. Yes, we have the hope of a new godly kingdom coming a time of peace, prosperity, and harmony as the world has never known, a time when Jesus Christ himself will rule the earth from Jerusalem, and God's way of life will prevail. We have an opportunity to be pioneers of that way of life today, and we are extremely grateful to God for the example set before us as we move forward toward his kingdom. Dr. Meredith, like Mr. Armstrong before him, finished his race. These were two remarkable men. They were Philadelphian pioneers. They fought a good fight. They kept the faith. And it is incumbent on us to do the same. We too must, with God's power, fight the good fight, keep the faith, and finish our race. In that light, for this year's feast film, we're going to get a glimpse of the modern history of God's work through the eyes of Dr. Roderick C. Meredith. Back in 2011... The Living Church of God produced a feast film entitled Philadelphian Pioneers. To honor the memory and the work of Dr. Meredith, this year we've chosen to remake that 2011 film, including new footage and photographs. We hope you will be inspired to hear, in the words of one who labored in the work for decades, how Christ intervened to guide and direct his work. With God's help, guided by Jesus Christ, we can all go forward with zeal and power as pioneers of God and His way. So now it is our honor to introduce to you Philadelphian pioneers onward to the kingdom. In the fall of 1926, Mrs. Loma D. Armstrong, wife of Herbert W. Armstrong, challenged her husband on the subject of the Seventh-day Sabbath and the theory of evolution. 
After an in-depth six-month study, Mr. Armstrong became convinced that mainstream Christianity was not teaching what the Bible really says. Following a series of humbling ventures in the advertising business, in 1931, God began to use Mr. Armstrong to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. His powerful voice was first heard over the airwaves in Eugene, Oregon, and then over time the broadcast grew to cover the United States and many different parts of the world. In the mid-1940s, a young man looking for answers to life's biggest questions tuned in from Joplin, Missouri after hearing about the program from his uncle, Dr. C. Paul Merida. I first heard of God's truth back in the winter of 1944-45. I know that specifically because the Second World War was still raging. Germany was still being bombed by the British bombers by night because they had radar and we didn't. And American bombers by day. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong was talking about the fact that Germany, although it was being pulverized by our bombing, it would come back. And Germany would be the leader of the coming United States of Europe. During those years, one of my friends, Jimmy Mallett, got killed in a wrestling accident, got his neck broken, and he and I had wrestled hundreds of hours together as little boys growing up, rolling around in the Bermuda grass, trying out tricks on each other, lovingly, of course, but like little bear cubs. He got killed wrestling. The very thing we did, it hit me. And as Jimmy's body was lowered into the ground, I wanted to understand why. Why did God let Jimmy die? And the Methodist church, the mainstream church I was growing up in, did not understand. And so I began to realize that Mr. Armstrong did understand. And my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, and I began to hear the program together. And we realized that these other men who were having religious programs did not understand. We began to get various commentaries and Bible of uh, religious writings from various Protestant groups as well. And it just didn't make sense. It had no real meaning. It was just love Jesus and be nice. But they did not understand the purpose of life. I did hear, just before I came, a young Youth for Christ evangelist. And this man was very zealous about talking about Jesus, Jesus and the gospel and the precious gospel. And I asked him, I was hearing Mr. Armstrong, I'm just getting ready to come down to Ambassador College. And everyone was very sentimental about the precious blood of Jesus and the precious gospel. And I went up afterward after others had mainly gone and said, well, is that it? It's just about Jesus. He said, well, yes, that's it, that's it, that's it. And he was really puzzled. And I told him I was hearing Mr. Armstrong and he had heard of him, of course. And so he was very defensive. And he said, well, he says, Mr. Armstrong is very enthusiastic and very sincere, I guess. But he said, you can be totally sincere and totally wrong. And he looked at me like that, and I thought, yeah, I'm, I thought about that. Then later I came to realize that he was totally sincere and totally wrong, <laughs> and that Mr. Armstrong was sincere but had the truth of the Bible. In the early days, of course, as I first began to hear the program, I was attracted by prophecy because that was showing that God was real. It wasn't something sentimental that was happening in world events. But as I came to college and began to hear his sermons in person, then it took on more of a deep spiritual meaning, and he talked about Jesus Christ being our Savior and how we had to repent of breaking God's commandments. And he gave a very powerful sermon within weeks after I came about the true Sabbath of God. And I hadn't understood anything about that, but he went right down the line 
proving that the seventh day was the Sabbath of God and how important that was as a sign between God and His people. Most of my family, when I was first being called, did not understand, and they were upset. My mother was deeply distressed about it being different and strange compared to the Methodists and all of her friends, and she got extremely sick and later said she realized it was out of anguish about his religion. And I knew it hurt her, and it affected me. I did not like to see her hurting. But my dad, he began listening and subscribing to the plain truth. My father did realize that I was learning something very special, and he at one time later finally said, he said, someday I may need to be baptized, really baptized, and I want one of you fellows in the college to do it. I know you know the truth, and I understand that, and I'm not ready yet, but someday I will be. And of course, he died before that happened. God was not calling him, but he did come to respect the truth that Mr. Armstrong had taught us. Well, my mother and father were both college graduates. They both graduated from Baker University in Baldwin City, Kansas, just out west of Kansas City, a Methodist college. And uh, my father became an accountant. And my mother at first was a history teacher in various junior high and high schools until my father and mother married. And so they both were educated. They both had high ideals. And my old Methodist grandmother was very sincere and would read the Bible to me. And I began to realize there was something about the Bible itself that went way beyond what I was getting in church and Sunday school. I do remember walking through her bedroom when she was praying, kneeling by her bed with her long white hair streaming way down her back to her waist. But I, I was impressed that she, she prayed before she went to bed at night. So I loved her, learned from her, and that was very helpful. And my father gave me a pair of boxing gloves when I was a little boy and uh, taught me to box and had a fast bag, you know, not the heavy bag like Rocky hit, but the fast bag, you know, brrr, up like that. So I learned to box as a little boy. And I became the Golden Gloves champion in the welterweight class two different years there in Joplin, Missouri. Then in junior high school basketball, I remember a specific instance where at the halftime playing this uh, final game of some tournament, we were way behind and uh, the other fellows had gone on up. And as I was coming to the steps to go upstairs to the basketball floor, from our lower floor locker room, this other fellow, John Ivey, was there. and We both looked at each other peculiarly, and I said, well, what, how did you were staying behind? Why did you stay behind, John? He said, well, I, I was praying, and I felt funny. I said, well, I was praying too, and God suddenly helped us start winning, and John made more baskets by far than I did. He was the best man on the team, and, and uh, he was taller, and he didn't wear glasses as I did. But God let me make the final winning shot. I threw the ball just like a baseball, and strangely, it went right in, and we won. And then the buzzer sounded, and God helped us win. It was an obvious to me answer to prayer. I had several things like that happen. God began to show me that he was real, uh, and a number of things. And that was, that was encouraging to me to realize that God was real. 
Another thing I did, I became the mile champion of my high school for all three years. I learned perseverance. You've got to keep on, keep on, don't give up. And that helped me in that particular way. A miler's got to keep on to the end. You can't just bang and it's over with. You got to drive yourself even when you're terribly tired and you're getting really worn out by the end of the third lap. And then at the end of the third lap, as some of you know, they have what they call the gun lap because they start, they, they, they shoot the starting pistol at the final lap, at the beginning of it. And that sort of gives you another shot of adrenaline. So you do that fourth lap to finish the mile run. And uh, that's when you have to keep driving ahead in order to win. Part of it is willpower. It is not just a matter of ability. It's a matter of willpower. Never give up. And that's something Mr. Armstrong taught us as well. And what the Bible tells us, never give up. I came to Ambassador College, of course, because I'd been hearing the program, and I realized I had to somehow find out the meaning of life. And so I came down from a work, a job I had up in uh, near Boise, Idaho, in a government dam project on the Greyhound bus, and stayed with my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, and his wife for the first few weeks. He guided me. He paid my first year's tuition in Ambassador College and was very helpful. And he was a very thoughtful, uh, sensitive man and uh, spent hundreds, thousands of hours thinking through uh, what the truth was and going over the notes he'd taken on Mr. Armstrong for many, many years, including before he came to Ambassador College and during that time in helping put together the correspondence course. He was a very thoughtful, very educated, and very dedicated man. And then I moved into Mayfair, at the big, uh, old, uh, wonderful ex-millionaire's home that Mr. Armstrong had bought for very little because it was a rooming house by now, and we began to renovate it. And the fellows lived on the third floor, and the girl, the only girl in college, lived on the first floor, Betty Bates. And they had these old ladies living on the second floor in between. They were all, all in their 70s and 80s. And as they died off or moved out or went to nursing homes, then the students began to move in there. I went all over the campus, by the way, when I first came, asked uh, Mrs. Esther Olson, who was getting the mail and opening the money, the checks that were coming in. I said, well, uh, where does the money go and who counts the money and who takes the money to the bank? And does it go to Mr. Armstrong? <laughs> I went around all over campus checking up on him to be sure he wasn't a, a greedy person or in it for the money. And years later, he laughed. He said, Rod, he says, I heard you were all over the campus checking up on me. He said, I didn't care. We have nothing to hide. And so I did check up on him and ask him occasionally difficult, uh, so-called difficult scripture questions. I can't remember which ones, but I was uh, somewhat challenging. I came out to check up on Mr. Armstrong. And once I got there, I realized that I had found the pearl of great price, so to speak. And one of my dear friends uh, named Jimmy Porter, later became president of the CPA Association for the whole uh, state of Missouri, intelligent young man, but a very dear friend. He knew I was frustrated for the last couple of years of high school trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, after I'd been to Ambassador College a year or two and came back home to the for a year, a week or so during the summer, he said, Rod, he said, whatever it is you're looking for, you found it, didn't you? You have a peace of mind. And I said, yes, I, I know, I found it now. 
And uh, he sensed that. He didn't understand, but he, he sensed that I had found what I was looking for. In the first year of Ambassador College, we only had 12 students the year I came. And uh, as some of you brethren know, the first year were only four students with Herman Hay, Raymond Cole, and Richard David Armstrong and Betty Bates. The second year, Raymond McNair and his brother Marion and uh, uh, Kenneth Herman came. Then the third year, my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, already had a doctorate, of course, and, and others came, and I came. There were just five of us, so it made 12 students, still only one girl, Betty Bates. So we all dated Betty. We would take her for a walk or this or that, just as a sister. None of us fell in love with her. She was a very sweet girl, and we often would have uh, bowl sessions Friday night on the third floor where the fellows lived. It was just the fellows up there, and we would have uh, some wine and cheese and crackers and talk over prophecy and world events and the purpose of life, and that was very meaningful. And there was a sense of dedication, a sense of learning, a sense of the purpose of life among the students. All of us had to work to earn our way through, but we had to be willing to sacrifice. We were there for a purpose, and there was that sense of purpose during those early days. We were very close to Mr. Armstrong on those early years. I spent thousands of hours, and I'm not exaggerating, I don't mean hundreds, I mean thousands of hours with Mr. Armstrong personally. He had us over to his home for Thanksgiving once or twice. He would come and talk to us, and we, Raymond McNair and I particularly, because we were the best two uh, ping pong players, we didn't have any gymnasium, so ping pong became a big thing, and he would play table tennis with us, or ping pong, many, many times, and talk and visit and tell stories about his life and then afterwards students would gather around and then he would open up and tell us you know various things about his life or about the growth of the work or what it was going on in a very personal way i heard him and watched him make the radio programs uh, well many times maybe 50 or 100 times and of course he had a tremendously rich resonant radio voice and uh, a very great sense of dedication and uh, enthusiasm and he was a man who always thought big he saw the big purpose of life and portrayed that and a sense of understanding and a sense of confidence i'll always remember coming back from my first baptizing tour with raymond mcnair i'd been out all over the united states in 1951 and uh, just to give you a little flavor of mr armstrong's personality he had actually ordered us to come on back. Raymond and I wanted to keep going to visit more people. We hated to miss them, but Raymond was designated as the, as the senior class president, and I was already designated as the student body president, and he, he absolutely wanted us back. He said, it won't be the same to start this college year without our main two leaders. You guys get back here. So we drove all through the night from Oklahoma City and got back there dead tired the morning that we were to have the uh, freshman orientation and uh, as we walked in the back of the college he heard we were coming and he came down to meet us I didn't know he'd be there but he heard I guess he knew we were going to be tired and I was all uh, rousing around with Raymond oh I'm so tired and we had to come back and I was ready to be very negative to him and uh, we didn't know he was an apostle of course he didn't know that either I respected him but I was had been losing sleep and out of sorts 
And he came bounding down to see us. He said, boy, it's good to see you fellows. And he said, it's really great to have you here. And you're going to add so much to this orientation of all these new students. And we're glad you worked your way through the night. And here you are. And you're here safe. And he was so enthusiastic and warm. I just melted like hot butter in the sun. (laughs) He used his personality. And as he would express it, his voice personality to just charm me to death so to speak. So I did get to know him extremely well personally, partly because of my friendship with Dick. I'd go out at night with Dick Armstrong taking the tapes as they were uh, actually the old discs. The old radio programs were made on these discs and he had to take them to the uh, radio uh, to mail them to the radio stations and he had to go to out to Los Angeles International Airport. We call it LAX. I'd drive out there with him many times And we would stop by and have a cup of coffee or something on the way back and long talks with Dick and got to know him very well. And because of that relationship and friendship with Dick, then I would be over at the Armstrong's house and see them in a very personal way and got acquainted with Armstrong special. Mrs. Armstrong was not too much of a cook. Her mother had died when she was three or four years old. And so she didn't learn how to cook very much. And the Armstrongs had a lot of what they called Armstrong special. And that was cornflakes. <laughs> and so we'd be over at the Armstrongs' house and sometimes for lunch or something and have cornflakes. And I, Dick and I would eat out a lot later because, again, they didn't do a lot of cooking. And finally, Dick was married. And actually, I got married before he did. And he and I spent thousands of hours together again until his death on a baptizing tour in late July uh, 1958 and just before he died literally just a couple months before he died God allowed him to perform three unusual miracles I won't describe the others but the most striking of all was the healing the supernatural healing immediately of a man named Howard Clark and Howard Clark had been a, par- a quadriplegic who'd had shrapnel wounds from the Second World War. He was a Marine medic and had been shot up. He'd been in the top Navy hospitals all over the nation. They'd operated on him. They'd done everything medicine could do. But on Pentecost weekend in 1958, I'd been sent out to either, uh, I don't remember where, Chicago or Pittsburgh or somewhere for the Pentecost weekend. And when I came back, as I was being brought in from the airport by one of the young men from the college, he said, by the way, Mr. Meredith, do you realize that Howard Clark was healed? And we didn't have as much action on the telephone, and there was no email back then. I just hadn't heard. I said, wow, he's healed. Of course, I knew Howard really well. I had taught him and, and worked with him and been in his home as a guest, and, and uh, his wife doing the cooking, of course, and even baptized him personally and counseled him and liked him. I was astonished. So the next day I came to the campus where they used to have a circular drive. You older brethren may have seen those pictures, a circular drive, and here's you look in, there's the library on the right side, and the circular drive with parking places, and here was Howard sitting on the fender of his car there before he couldn't even sit up alone without the braces of his wheelchair, and he was sitting on the fender. And I came up to him. He was very intelligent, had his good sense of humor, as many intelligent people do. It is kind of an all-knowing smile on his face as he saw me coming up. He knew what I was thinking. I said, Howard, I hear you've been healed. He said, yeah, I've been completely healed. I said, well, that's great. I'm sure we're grateful to God. I'm wondering, hey, so you can walk? He says, you want to see me, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. So he got down and he kind of clumped around, kind of like I have to since my stroke. 
But two months later, when I performed the wedding of another Clark, no relationship, Mr. Bryce Clark, Howard was there, and just within six or nine weeks, whenever it was, he was at the wedding, and this time he wasn't clumping around. His strength came back. The muscles were rebuilt in his body gradually, week by week. This time, he had a child, and each hand was going along holding the children, brought tears to my eyes. Here's the guy who couldn't even get out of the wheelchair. Now he's standing up, unaided, carrying a child in each arm. Wow. God supernaturally healed Howard Clark overnight because of the prayers of Richard David Armstrong. God heals supernaturally. That's one of many examples, but I've never forgotten that because I was very much involved with Dick and his life and Howard Clark and his life. The first Feast of Tabernacles I attended was up in Belknap Springs. And the place we met was a great big wooden lodge with a huge stone fireplace. And so inside where we would meet, it was very interesting. And the brethren would all sit around in various kind of old chairs. It wasn't fancy at all. But Mr. Armstrong gave all the sermons. And I mean, we used to meet morning and afternoon for all eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he would give the opening night as well. So he preached 17 sermons in a row. His sermons were usually about two hours each. So he was able to explain and expound the Bible and the whole purpose of life. It was a very meaningful time. Mr. Armstrong virtually talked me into giving my first sermonette. I think it was in my junior or senior year of college. And I said, well, I don't want to be a minister. That's one thing I'm not going to be. And he remembered that and kidded me about that later. But he said, well, you're the student body president, and so just give a speech to the students. It's just a college uh, chapel service, he called it at that point, to get me to speak. So I did give a talk, and then afterward he said, well, uh, when you finished, all of us knew you were going to be a minister. Everyone knew, and I thought, no, I didn't know that, and I'm sure many others didn't either. I remember my topic. I may still have that old outline. I keep these old spiral notebooks with my sermon notes. And the, the topic was, what is a true Christian? Because that is one of the things that I learned from Mr. Armstrong that was impressed upon me in the freshman Bible class, that a Christian is not just someone who just believes in Jesus. A Christian is someone who has Christ living in him and who follows Christ's example in keeping the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, and as one who really follows what Christ taught and the way Christ lived. And so I gave that sermon, just a quick, quickie sermon, uh, sermonette, I should say, based on that theme, and it was very well received. I was able to be a speaker more quickly or readily perhaps than some of the men because I had had a fairly educated background and had reasonably good grammar and also a great deal of enthusiasm. And I had a junior high speech teacher, a high school uh, call, uh, call course in speech, and I had Mr. Armstrong's brother-in-law for about a year, Walter Dillon. He writes about it in his autobiography and his speech class my first year in Ambassador College and the second year another teacher so I had several speech classes and that helped me have a better background in speaking. It was exciting. I was very zealous to help people but I did not have any idea I would be a minister. I thought a minister just sits in one place or stays one place, preaches in one church but it was exciting going across the United States. 
and Raymond and I and later Burke and I would leave Pasadena around 9 or 10 at night and drive through the desert across to uh, usually Tucson and have breakfast there the next morning when the sun was coming up and then we would drive on across and be baptizing these people that had written in and we would have their address and we would have written them ahead of time saying we will meet you at the U.S. Post Office in Russellville, Arkansas, or Waco, Texas, or Bolivar, Missouri, or wherever it was. And then we would pull in in our big old Chrysler. This was 1951 and two, and we had a 1946 Chrysler Mr. Armstrong was given. And uh, so we were able to drive that. It was a very safe car, an older car, but in good shape. And they would see these two young men coming in. They would usually meet us there, and they would know immediately who we were because we'd be coming in this big car with a California license, and we'd have short-sleeved white shirts on. And then they would come up, and we would sense they were the ones, and they'd say, are you the boys from Pasadena? Are you the boys from Mr. Armstrong? Well, we were acting ministers, but we weren't ordained. And so they didn't call us boys in many occasions. We were just 21, 22, 23 years old. But by the time we finished explaining and expounding the Bible, they, they didn't just think of us as boys. They would often break down and, uh, and cry, as I said, knowing they might not see anyone again from Mr. Armstrong in this life. They would sometimes foolishly bring along their local pastor, thinking he would be so happy. And in many cases, he was not happy at all. And he would try to interrupt or challenge us. But every single time, somehow, God gave these two young men in our 20s insight and wisdom to answer them. And we would start right down through the Bible, and they would get embarrassed and leave every time because they could not answer. They just simply could not answer us about the Sabbath or basic things the Bible is very plain upon. We knew the Bible only having had, you know, three or four years of college. We knew the Bible better than they did. They did not understand. So it was interesting to me and a revelation to me how confused these ministers were who had all this sentimental stuff but did not understand the Bible, and we did. We had to trust in God again and again and again from uh, water moccasins and other snakes, from men who wanted to shoot us or beat us up, and we had to put our trust in God. And again, we could see that God delivered us again and again. We were missing meals. We were missing sleep. But God was with us on those tours. At the end of that summer, of the second tour, I raised up a church in San Diego, the first church raised up as a result of a master college. God gave me that opportunity, and we began a little church in a place down on uh, 6th Avenue in San Diego called Dartley Hall, and we began that church with a congregation of seven local people, plus five of us coming down and the college car from the college. We had 12 people there all together, which was interesting because 12 is the number of organizational beginnings. After that autumn, early autumn, Mr. Armstrong had already planned to send me up to Oregon to take over the church in Portland, Oregon. He said, Basil Wolverton, he wrote the Bible story, some of you older brethren remember. He was pastoring the church, but he had a full-time job as a cartoonist. And he was just doing that on the side to hold, sort of hold it together as a local elder. So I wasn't ordained anything, and yet I'd been on these baptizing tours. I'd sent out as Mr. Armstrong's representative. So he sent me up there as an acting pastor 
to help build up the Portland church, which I did. I helped add a few people and strengthen the church. Looking back, I think Mr. Armstrong sent me up there to test me, frankly, to see what I would do. During that time, he flew me down because he had decided to ordain a number of men as evangelists, and he didn't think of evangelists as some great office as we do today. He just thought of young men like uh, Timothy and Titus and others who were helping Paul, and he needed help. Some of us were already beginning to write articles. I had already begun to write articles in the Good News magazine and later the Plain Truth magazine and help edit those magazines while I was still in college. And uh, then during that autumn before I went up there, to uh, Portland, Oregon. So I was flown down and ordained an evangelist uh, on December the 20th, 1952. And Mr. Armstrong in the library uh, building, the main uh, room there, uh, ordained, first of all, Herman Hay, who was the oldest in, uh, in that sense in terms of service. And he was ordained. And then he and Mr. Armstrong turned and ordained uh, Raymond Cole, and then they all turned and, and ordained Richard David Armstrong, Mr. Armstrong's older son, who turned out to be faithful in the work. And they, in turn, laid hands on my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith. And last, I was ordained, last and least, which I should have been, because I was the youngest physically and the newest of the truth. So I was ordained an evangelist uh, in December, December the 20th, 1952. And I'm the only one left of that group uh, that's still alive at this time. Mr. Armstrong asked Herman Hay and me, we were already leading students to help get out the Good News magazine at one point during my uh, junior year of college. He had not been able to get it out for 13 years because he'd been building the work in the college. And so we were able to get it out in the spring of 1951. If you older brother remember, that's when it first started coming out regularly. And on the second edition of it, I think I had the lead article, College Atmosphere at Ambassador. We shared a little corner office in Mayfair basement, the student dormitory basement. And we had little student desks that were just normal student desks side by side. And uh, we would work together. And Elva Russell, later Elva Sediacic, would come down and help type some of our articles. I often wrote mine out on yellow legal pads. And she was the only one who could figure out and decipher my handwriting. And she would type my articles. And then we would put it together, edit it, get it down to Ed Swain at Pacific Press the next morning. We usually leave at 8, 7.30 or 8 the next morning when they opened down at this place called Pacific Press where they would put it together and then we'd get the brown lines and then the page proofs and finally the magazine would come out. So Herman A. and I helped get out the magazine in the early days. He did not want it to call it the plain truth at first or let us write. He wanted the plain truth to be of a higher level. So after we'd been helping him get out the Good News magazine and he'd worked with us and taught us and trained us and given us ideas about how to write better, then he began to let us write for the plain truth. And then if you look back, you who have these old copies, you'll find the plain truth began to come out regularly for the first time in January 1953. 
And of course, at the beginning, we just had a few thousand issues. So finally, it grew and grew and grew. And once we got on more radio stations, the circulation grew. And it grew all the way from three to 5,000 issues on up to finally, we had 8.3 million issues going around the world. There was tremendous growth over the years. And by the way, we had a third magazine for a couple of years. And the plain truth, you older brethren may remember, was kind of worldly during that time, just a lot of news stuff. And then you had the Good News magazine, just news about the church and deep spiritual articles. But the bridge between those two was wide. We got the Tomorrow's World magazine going back then, which had more spiritual evangelistic type articles to bring people along toward the church. And that magazine lasted two or three years. And it did a lot of good, though, frankly, during that time. And uh, we were grateful to have that opportunity. But that kept us very, very busy. As you know now, brethren, we uh, have used that same title. I've revived that title having started the first time. So we call our flagship magazine Tomorrow's World and very grateful uh, for that title. On the trip to Europe with Richard David Armstrong in 1954, I was very enlightened in so many ways. I'd never been outside the United States. And we went over on the old ship, the Queen Elizabeth, the big queen, the biggest passenger ship ever built to that time. And as we pulled out of the fog, coming out of New York Harbor, just as we passed the Statue of Liberty, the tugboats let loose and the main engines came on and the whole ship just shuddered and the big horn came on and it just made chills go up and down my spine. I thought I'm leaving the United States. I'd never been out of the United States before except briefly across the border into Mexico. So it was quite an experience. But the most striking thing was the campaigns themselves. We had 700 people come in Northern Ireland and partly that was because they were very upset at the Catholics and there was a stress between the Catholics and the Protestants, and they assumed that Mr. Armstrong was anti-Catholic in the way that some of their Protestant ministers were, so they turned out in support. They weren't necessarily being called, frankly, but Mr. Armstrong was very powerful, and he told the people there in Belfast and over in Glasgow and Manchester and down in London, he said, if you British people don't wake up and turn to the God of the Bible, he said, God will take your empire away. And he said specifically, and I want all of you brethren to realize this, I heard it before God, I was there. He said, God will begin to take away your sea gates. And at that time, they were about eight or ten major sea gates, and now all but two are gone. All but two. And my wife and I were sent back over there two years later, and right then the Suez crisis came, and that Britain lost the Suez Canal within two years after he said that. That was an amazing thing. Those things did begin to happen, major things affecting major parts of the world. Even now, the last two remaining Seagates are in danger, and uh, it, before long they'll probably be gone, and uh, then there will be none. There had been ten, then there will be none. Just as God's servant, Mr. Armstrong, said in the early 1950s, and I've heard him repeat that many times over the years before he died. Then my wife and I were sent back over there. By that time, I had married Margie McNair, Mr. Raymond McNair and Burke McNair and Carl McNair's sister, Carl McNair's older sister, Margie, was my first wife who died of cancer about 35 years ago. 
But we went over and uh, were given the opportunity to have a little follow-through campaign in London in January, February of 1957. We were there the winter of 56, 57, and our first child, Elizabeth, was born in London. And then in 1960, my family and I were sent back to Britain again, and I had 12 solid weeks of evangelistic campaigns. This was planned by Mr. Armstrong, not by me, the old-fashioned campaigns, uh, five nights a week for 12 weeks in a row. So I had 60 sermons in a row, plus additional one or two sermons every weekend on the Sabbath, because sometimes I'd preach in Bristol in the morning and back in London in the afternoon when Mr. Armstrong wasn't there. So I helped start the churches in London and then in Bristol and and Birmingham and up in Manchester as well. And two of my four children were born in Great Britain. My younger son, uh, my younger older son, I should say, Jim, was born right at the college at Brickett Wood in November of, of 1960 while we were there. months after Dick Armstrong's death, Mr. Armstrong became very concerned because he and Ted were the only leaders at the top, and he read about this businessman who had his big business and his son with him, and they both were killed in a plane crash, and the company just came apart, two or three hundred employees and no one to carry on. So he appointed me the second vice president. I never asked for that, dreamed of that. I didn't even know there was such a thing, frankly. But he appointed me second vice president around October, November 1958, two or three months after Dick's death. So he said, if anything happens to me, I want you to carry on, Rod. You're the most experienced and balanced overall man that we have. But I was there for about 12 years and was told to know all about the work and to get into the various departments and know what was going on in case I had to take over. So I was shouldered with that responsibility. I had the privilege of teaching more students ambassador college classes, Bible classes, than any other human being. And that's the truth. You older brethren can check up on that. And so I was teaching ambassador Bible classes nearly every year from 1953 until 1989. Also, I was superintendent of ministers over the churches and helped develop these churches all over the United States. We'd start one church in Cincinnati, and pretty soon we'd have two or three. We'd start one church in Chicago, and pretty soon we'd have three or four. And all across the country, it was like that. Tremendous growth. I sometimes talk about the fine 50s because Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong were the father and mother figure and there was a great deal of stability and the work slowly began to get going. But in the 1960s, I call that the soaring 60s because things really did take off. But then we had dozens of ministers, dozens of churches, and we grew very, very rapidly during the soaring 60s. However, near the end of the 60s, there began to be a little bit of a malaise come in because people began to take it for granted. And as the world got worse, the church got worse. Dr. Herman Hay used to say the church reflects the world. When the world becomes uh, weak and worldly, and we might say Laodicean, then the church becomes more Laodicean. Mrs. Armstrong died uh, in about April or May of 1967, and uh, things did begin to deteriorate a little bit. Those of us inside could see it. Most of the brethren couldn't see it, but we could see it even by 1968 and 9. 
and in the late 60s. And the deep respect for God, for the Bible, and the fear of God was not as prominent near as much. For back in the 1950s when we would visit people on the baptizing tour or in starting churches, so many of the times they would know all about the Bible and they would be asking questions about the Bible. And the main questions they would often ask were about the epistles of Paul, the difficult scriptures in Paul's writings. And that's one reason I started the class and God allowed me and Mr. Armstrong allowed me to introduce the course called the Epistles of Paul to explain all these so-called difficult verses. And but by the 1960s and early 70s, they were so turned off, most people didn't even ask questions about that. They didn't even know about the Bible. The question was, is there a real God? And is there a purpose being worked out? So the whole worldly malaise began to set in to a limited degree, even in the church. But certainly the college did a lot of good. We had beautiful uh, activities, beautiful uh, concerts and dances and parties. And Mr. Armstrong always emphasized quality. His quality permeates that auditorium with beautiful stone that was used in the auditorium. And it was very expensive, but very beautiful. And that auditorium is one of the most beautiful auditoriums in the world. Some of the top uh, orchestral leaders have said it had the best sound quality of any place they had ever played. So it was a very beautiful uh, auditorium. The death of my first wife, Margie Helen McNair Meredith, was in June, June 16, 1976. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. I never expected that I would outlive Margie. I always thought she would live longer because she was six years younger. So it really shook me. And I remember having to pray and fast and ask God's help to see the big picture myself. But I saw that it was God's will, or within his will at least, and he allowed it. Part of that might have been because not a Margie, she was a very wonderful person but it helped me to have to be tested in that way. And then I had to adapt to a completely different personality with my second wife and a different set of emotions to give me a broader perspective as I went on. And it certainly humbled me because I remember thinking young, some young smart like uh, young man, as, as so many of them are, and I have been growing up, but he came right out of the edge of the freeway in the on-ramp when I was coming into work one day from uh, La Cunada and uh, almost hit my car and he went on and I swerved so he didn't hit me. But it was right after Margie's death and then I thought, well, I don't care. My life is over anyway. Margie's gone. I started to speed up and catch him. And I thought, no, after just a 30 seconds, I had to meditate sitting there in the car. I thought, no, life goes on. And I've got four children to take care of. I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. And I had to pray to God silently to forgive my arrogance and to help go on and do his will. But all of you out there, brethren, will have trials like that. Your child will die. Your wife will die. You'll get fired. We're going to have trials and tests in the next several years beyond what we have ever dreamed. And we're going to have to keep our mind on the reality of God. He is our Father. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And you have to always understand that. I was uh, used as a regional pastor, kind of an area pastor, they called it at that time, out from Pasadena and watching over Bakersfield and Santa Barbara and uh, several other little churches around the area. And I was asked to go up to solve a deacon problem. The deacons were having a feud up in Bakersfield and two or three of them had already dropped away. 
So I went up there to solve the problem and talk to them and try to help straighten it out. And in the meantime, I gave a sermon uh, once the first Sabbath I was there, a very strong, heartfelt sermon because my wife had died about a year before this time. And I gave the sermon on uh, the resurrection. And uh, several people came up later and and the group was this beautiful young woman, uh, actually radiantly beautiful, I thought. And she says, Dr. Meredith, I love you. That was such a wonderful sermon. And all the thing I remembered, of course, was Dr. Meredith, I love you. And that just hit me. And she was so pretty, I was just afraid she was married and this and that. And I asked the pastor later, I said, well, who was that? And he said, that was Cheryl Hensley. And I said, well, is she married? And he said, no, her husband died a few months ago. I thought, wow. She's a widow, and I'm a widower. <laughs> anyway, so I got big ideas right away, and I asked her out uh, a few days later, maybe the next time I came up, and began to court her. And we had a wonderful courtship because I was terribly lonesome after my wife's, my first wife's death of cancer back in 1976. And I met her just about a year and two weeks later, and I'd never seen her before, that is Cheryl. So I was grateful to have that companionship while we were courting. And later on, I would have her come down from Bakersfield uh, to stay in Pasadena and take her around every weekend. And one weekend, I would have her stay with the family that were, uh, he was the barber there in Pasadena. He used to cut Mr. Armstrong's hair. And my wife had been a friend of him and his wife when they were in Bakersfield and was baptized on the same day back in 1971. And then the alternate weekends, I'd have them stay with Mr. and Mrs. Apartian so that she would always be staying with someone. It wouldn't look funny in any way to people. And uh, after a few weeks, my wife said, or uh, she wasn't my wife then, my, my friend said, Cheryl said, Rod, she said, I find out Mrs. Apartian was your first wife's best friend. Uh, you put me right in the lion's den. I said, that's fine. It's good to check up on each other. And, of course, they gave a good report on her, and I came to love her very deeply. And so we were married uh, at the end of November and uh, had a, a very good marriage overall for over 33 years now, about 33 and a half years. So I'm very grateful for her and the help that she's been. She had to come right down and be a mother to my little daughter, Rebecca, who was only about nine years old at the time we were married, and was, uh, uh, I just really needed someone to be a mother to her. And Cheryl was a mother to her, and then for a few years to my son, Jim, who was still a teenager, and helping me take care of the house and everything. So I've been very grateful for her all these years. I now have six children, and uh, I will soon have 10 grandchildren, and I have three great-grandchildren, so I'm very blessed, and God has given me a very rich and wonderful life. And it is difficult to be a minister and constantly be out on trips and raising up churches and campaigns and still be as good a father as you would like to do. But I always entered the work as a crusade. When I was first converted, it was like a crusade, and I wanted to help Mr. Armstrong to build the work. And I've been a crusader ever since, frankly, and my family all knows that. This is the most important thing in the world, and I'm very grateful to be part of it. But my children have had to put up with that and have done reasonably well in spite of that, and I'm very thankful for them and to God for protecting and watching over them in that way. God warned the Ephesian era. He said, you have lost your first love. 
and so on warned them about that. And that began to happen to us during the 1970s. And some of the liberals began to take over. And two or three of us, including me, we had to do battle with the liberals, helping Mr. Armstrong and uh, trying to back up the truth and help him hold things together. And uh, we, we were successful, and yet we lost a number of people and a number of ministers who were very willing to compromise the truth and who turned on Mr. Armstrong. Some of them back in 1974, we lost 30 ministers and 3,000 people on the East Coast because of a bunch of rebellious young ministers. Satan was attacking and attacking and attacking continually and trying to turn people against Mr. Armstrong. But we had to try to help him and carry on the work as best we can. And during those years, frankly, some of the bad guys accused me and they would say that they'd tell Mr. Armstrong, meaning Raymond McNair, Raymond and Rod wish you would die so they could take over the work. And that was a damnable lie. And that was not true at all. And all the people around me knew that, including those that work closely with me. Some are with United right now, but I think they would still verify that. I worked hundreds of hours with Burke McNair during those years. And he knows that I never even started to commence to say anything against Mr. Armstrong or that I wanted to start my own church or take over. I did not feel that way. I did not have that attitude. And so we had to wait on God and ask God every day to deliver us and protect the work. In the 1980s, as most of you know, Mr. Armstrong had just had his massive heart failure back in 1977, and he was still recuperating from his massive heart failure and was very weak and was not able to do as much in the early 80s as he had done. But he still would try to come over to the office about 10 o'clock in the morning and spend a number of hours at the campus. He didn't make quite as many trips, but he was putting the church back on the track. When Mr. Armstrong died, uh, Mr. Dukach took over, and he had. I came by to see him that very morning. He called all the Council of Elders and had us come in for a, a photo and uh, told us that Mr. Armstrong had died. And we got along fairly well at first until the doctrines began to change. But as he allowed a couple of the young men to influence him, then slowly but surely you began to sense a lack of respect for everything Mr. Armstrong had taught. And they didn't talk much about prophecy. They didn't talk much about uh, Mr. Armstrong's leadership, about how we needed to do a powerful work. They began to water down aspects of the Sabbath. Finally, they began to water down the whole approach to healing and lots of things that made us distinct. And it was easily seen by those of us who were on the inside. A lot of the brethren did not understand that at first. They came out slowly, very carefully, just like the old story of how you heat the water up slowly with the frog in the pan. And pretty soon the frog is cooking before the frog realizes how hot the pan is getting. And that was what was happening to the church for several years during the late 1980s and early 90s. One of the major things that I saw them changing, of course, was the whole approach of having faith in God to heal. And they began to undermine that and just tear that apart in a sense. And Dr. Hayes said about this man that wrote the booklet on healing, actually Mr. Takach did not write it, someone else wrote it. And he said, Mr. Armstrong in his booklet talked about faith. 
And he said this other man talked about medicine. I thought that was an interesting summary. One man talked about faith and the other man about medicine. Very subtly, and yet you could easily see the emphasis was away from God. The emphasis also got off the understanding of who we are as a people. The British descended and American peoples are the descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel. It helps us know who we are in Bible prophecy. As Mr. Armstrong said, that's a major key. They very quickly began to undermine that concept and do away with that. And then they began to undermine nearly all understanding of prophecy that made any sense. And then they got back to the Protestant evangelical idea, just love Jesus and that's all you need. And, of course, that began to come in more and more as each year went by. And since I was one of the major Bible teachers uh, that had ever been in the college, I taught more than any other human being the Ambassador College Bible courses, I could see that right away. I know many of the brethren and some of the, even the ministers couldn't, but it was easy for me to spot and they really bawled me out one time. And one reason I was finally brought out of Big Sandy because they gave a sermon on uh, the fact Christ has to live within us the same life he did live 1900 years ago. And uh, showed the doctrine of Antichrist was exactly contrary to that and made that very plain. And that sermon did not go over too well with the guys in Pasadena. The other thing you could see very clearly was they didn't like Mr. Armstrong. They resented Mr. Armstrong. They wanted people to look to Mr. DeCotch and not look at Mr. Armstrong anymore. And so they began to undermine everything Mr. Armstrong taught that was in any way different from mainstream so-called, mainstream so-called Christianity. So that was interesting and, and easy to see if you had understanding and if you'd been around for a while. As I saw these men turning away from God, it helped me realize more profoundly how God had used Herbert W. Armstrong to give us the basic knowledge of what life was all about, the basic truths of the Bible, following real, genuine, original Christianity, and all those things that he gave. I came to deeply appreciate that even more once he was gone. And then I also came to appreciate the vast importance of genuine humility, not just wanting to do your own thing, but asking God to keep you humble, walk forward in the fear of God. And that has helped me ever since, not to try to appoint myself an apostle or a prophet or give myself some big title, but just to be God's servant. I was ordained as an evangelist, and that's what I am. I'm Christ's servant at the same rank Mr. Armstrong ordained me, and I haven't tried to pretend to be anything else, and I'm not anything else. I had to finally start the global church of God because it was getting so terribly bad, as I said, and I had two or three opportunities to do it earlier, was urged by one group to join them in starting a different work a full year and uh, before I finally left. But I told my wife and others, I said, I can't do that. I've always taught unity and loyalty, and I don't think things have got that bad yet. And uh, Mr. Takach still could try to straighten things out. So finally, I was going to be forcibly retired uh, by two of the young men, and I told them, I don't want to retire. I'm only 62 years old. I'm in good health. I can just serve as a local elder and anoint people and, and preach some sermonettes and, and, and help people any way I can. I don't have to be a big shot. And one of the smart aleck said, that's out of the question. And he had a real smart aleck way, and then he said it. It flew all over me. 
because they'd begin to undermine Mr. Armstrong so much before that time. The previous summer, they'd call me in and they said, you don't get it, do you? You still don't understand that we're not going to teach these uh, things that Mr. Armstrong taught anymore. And they began to make fun of Mr. Armstrong and pulled out old plain truths where there were some errors in dates and setting dates and prophecy articles. And, and literally, they didn't jump up and down on it, but they did verbally make fun of what Christ had done through Mr. Armstrong. I began to realize they're going the wrong way. Then a few weeks later, they came out with the book that does, uh, God is, I think was the title of that book that they had. And it gave a whole different concept of God Almighty than the Bible gives. That was very obvious at that time. That came out just before the feast uh, in 1992. And I had a chance to read it, but I just thought maybe it'll go away. And we went to the feast and afterward I realized this is terrible. We got to do something. Then a few weeks later, why uh, another leading evangelist called me in or I came by to see him and he told me they're going to change everything. This man had always told me the truth. I said, are they going to change the Sabbath? Yes. The holy days? Yes. Are they going to change the uh, prophecy understanding? Yes. They were already beginning to do that. And he just said they're going to change virtually everything that made us different from the mainstream Protestantism and uh, so he told me that very clearly, and I could see that's where they were heading. Then shortly after that, as I said, I was called in by the two young men and told I was going to be forcibly retired. That made me make up my mind. God gave me a shove. I didn't want to leave, but I was going to have to accept their retirement package. They offered me a good extended salary and to be able to buy my fleet car for very little and to get me to move anywhere, and they would pay for it. Of course, they would have been very glad to have me move anywhere to get me out of Pasadena. I knew that, the politics of it. I had to do that and then start something later, which would look hypocritical, or else take my stand right then. So I took my stand right then. I did insist on seeing Mr. Dukach, and I came in with my wife. Uh, because I knew that he would probably bring others with him and try to twist whatever I said. So I want, wanted one honest witness. So Cheryl went with me, and we went up to see Mr. Tkach in his office. And sure enough, he had the two young men there. So at least I had my wife. And uh, so I tried to, to tell him that I would be glad to carry on. If we could carry on the truth and the work, I would help him revive the work if he would. But he said, no, we're going to continue on our present way. And uh, then I said, well, in that case, I'm going to have to revive the work and teach the truth. God has called me to teach the truth. I can't let you guys stamp it out. And he said, Rod, Rod, he said, you'll destroy the whole work. And I said, no, sir, you are already destroying the work. I said, thousands are going with Ted who would not have done that otherwise. Thousands are going with Flirty who would not go do that otherwise. And I'm going to have to teach the truth and carry on the work. And uh, that kind of shook him. And he said, well, one thing I won't do, I won't attack you personally and try to get people mad at you because of your problems. I knew a number of his personal problems, some of which were very, very serious. But he said, oh, that's good. And then I thought, well, what will they do? Though? So I asked him and the young man, I said, well, will you attack me? And they said, oh, no, we would never do that. They all came out. And, of course, my wife told me in the elevator going down, she said, Ron, that's the first thing they'll do. And I found out later, yes, indeed, that was the first thing they did. They got things out on the telephone or the 
computers all over the country uh, beginning to put me down and saying Rod Meredith always wanted to have his own church and, and attack me and attack me and attack me. And when we started the global church, as you older brethren remember, we did not spend our time attacking them. We did try to get the church back on the track. We taught the truth. And that's the way we started, not just to have a continuing job. I told my wife, Cheryl, we may have to live in a trailer house. I didn't mean a big fancy mobile home. I meant a trailer house. And I meant it. She knew I meant it. We had to be willing to step out on faith. And that's what we did. And we were very small at first. But we started with 19 people in my living room. Then the first Sabbath later, when we met a little more public meeting, we had 42, and gradually it grew that through that uh, from that January up until the feast that autumn of '93, and then the next feast of Tabernacles, we had 3,000 people. So we did begin to grow, and God blessed the work. We got on radio right away. We tried to get out the gospel right away, and I'm grateful that we could do that. The way we can help prevent it happening again, again, is to reinforce this whole concept of original Christianity and make it very clear that Christianity is not merely believing in Christ, but having Christ live his life in you. That's why I keep emphasizing, as you know, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, as it ought to be, the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm trying to emphasize that. I give that scripture actually in almost every other sermon, as you know, and teach that way of life. And teach, of course, the importance of understanding the real God who intervenes in human affairs and get their mind on God as a reality the great God of creation who created and now intervenes in human affairs and teach people the reality of God and the fear of God and to do what God actually says and to study, not just read, but really study the Bible, feed on Christ and have the fear of God and walking that way. We preach the whole truth and Paul talks about that, of course, uh, in uh, back in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I think it is, the whole counsel of God. And if you find any of you something we're not preaching, tell us about it. We have grown, we have changed, and we will change. But other groups have dropped all kinds of things Mr. Armstrong taught. Others have added things that Mr. Armstrong did not teach. And we are trying to teach the whole counsel of God based on not just what Mr. Armstrong taught, but the Bible itself and not water things down. Secondly, we preach and practice the government of God. And some groups have a dictator. Some of these men have gone out and appointed themselves. God didn't appoint them, but they've appointed themselves as apostles or prophets or whatever. None of us in this work have done that. We are God's servants. If we're evangelists or a pastor, that's what we are. That's what we do. And we teach the truth and we teach the way of God. We try to teach the principle of government from the top down based on faith in God and where God is working and the fruits of a man's life. And also we teach the approach of servant leadership, that the minister, the leader is to be a servant of others, to try to help them, to build them, to serve them. And that's what I've been trying to do harder than ever. 
these last 18 and a half years of building the global and now living church of God. The third area, of course, is doing the work. And many of the churches started out just so the men would have a salary. As one group just openly said, they wanted the ministers to have the same salary, same way of life they'd had before. And that's in their literature, their early literature, which most of you can't get. I suppose they've tried to get rid of that. But many of the men who later came with us had been with some of these groups and told us that. That's what they said. We never did that. I told each minister who came with us, I said, you've got to have faith in God that God will use us to do the work and he'll take care of us. But we've got to do a powerful work. God wants us to do that. My food, Jesus said, is to do the work of God. And that's our food. That's the strength we have. Our reason for being is to get this message over the world and obey God's command to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, the coming government of God to all nations. And then, Jesus said, the end will come. Mr. Armstrong said to us a number of times and in the final Council of Elders meeting that I was, where I was present with him just a few days before his death and as many of you know at the very end of his uh, autobiography he said the greatest work of the church is, just, is still ahead and you go back and read that that's what he wrote that's what he said a number of times so he recognized that probably we can't be dogmatic but he recognized that probably the greatest work of the church was still ahead. At his death, he'd done a wonderful work. We honor him for that. But frankly, the vast majority of human beings all over Britain and Europe and all over the world, even here in the United States, has never heard the word Herbert W. Armstrong or Worldwide Church of God. A greater work is going to yet to be done. Perhaps the two witnesses will no doubt finish it beyond what we can do. But we've got to carry on that work And we will be blessed forever if we do carry on that work. And we will be laying up treasure in heaven. And we will be rewarded by God for doing our part in his work. Jesus said, this is my food. My food is to do the work of God, he said. Remember, in the book of John, that was his reason for being. Is it your reason for being that you're here on earth and you're called now, not just for personal salvation, but you're called to help do the work today? God could call, have called you later, but he called you now. And one of the big reasons he called you now is to help be part of the work of God to get Christ's message to the world, to be on that team. And if we all work together as a team in promoting the telecast and promoting the Internet and promoting the magazines and booklets and correspondence course and promoting these campaigns, then we can have a great impact on the world and additional thousands of people and actually millions will be witness to at least know there is a real God working out a purpose here below, they'll have that opportunity because of what we have done in giving of ourselves to do the work of God and get Christ's true message to the world today of the coming kingdom, the government of God. A true government has got to be set up. And this is our message, to give the message of that government, what that government stands for, and what it means. And if your heart is in that, then it's in what Christ is doing today. And you will be rewarded forever by having your part with zeal and faith and courage in the work of God today.
This has been a production of the Living Church of God.